Good afternoon. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center of Global Liberty and Prosperity. Um, and I want to welcome you all to uh, Cato today and to our book forum. Reflecting on the literature of doom and gloom of his day, one British historian wrote, uh, we cannot absolutely prove that those, who are, that those are in error who tell us that society has reached a turning point, that we have seen our best days. But so said all those before us, and with just as much apparent reason. On what principle is it that when we see nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? Thomas Babington Macaulay wrote those words in 1830. Since Macaulay's time, global life expectancy rose from 26 years to 70 years. Real per capita income, which remained stagnant for centuries, rose almost 12-fold. Ordinary people have access to more information, travel, leisure, and entertainment than ever before. The once ubiquitous institution of slavery had been abolished. And, having defeated the existential threat of Nazism and communism, liberal democracy has spread around the world. One thing, though, has remained the same. Fueled by psychological, physiological, and cultural reasons, pessimism remains with us. In my own adult lifetime, wrote the contemporary British journalist Matt Ridley, I have listened to the implacable predictions of growing poverty, coming, income, uh, coming famines, expanding deserts, imminent plagues, impending water wars, inevitable oil, ex oil exhaustion, mineral shortages, falling sperm counts, thinning ozone, acidifying rain, nuclear winters, mad cow epidemics, Y2K computer bugs, killer bees, sex change fish, global warming, ocean acidification, and even asteroid impacts that would presently bring this happy interlude to a terrible end. Well, Ron Bailey is a one-man antidote to pessimism. I once asked Ron what, is, what was the best time in human history, to which Ron replied, tomorrow. And it is that infectious optimism that infuses his work and inspires those of us who promote the idea of human progress. And it is, and it is therefore with great pleasure that I welcome Ron to Cato Institute today to launch his latest book, The End of Doom, Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century. Ron Bailey is an American libertarian science writer and author and editor of books on economics, ecology, and biotechnology. He attended University of Virginia, where he earned a BA in philosophy and economics. He worked briefly <laughs> as an economist for the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, <laughs> and then later worked at Forbes. His articles and reviews have appeared in national newspapers and magazines, and have been selected for the inclusion in the Best American Science Writing Anthology series. Since 1997, 
He's been a science correspondent for The Reason magazine. He has lectured at Harvard University, Rutgers, McGill University, University of Alaska, University of Quebec, Cato, and the American Enterprise Institute. Amongst his other books are Ecoscam, The False Prophets of, of Ecological Apocalypse, Liberation Biology, The Scientific and Moral Case for the Biotech Revolution, True State of the Planet, Earth Report 2000, and of course, his latest book, The End of Doom. With that, please help me welcome Ron Bailey. All right. Left, right. Thank you all for coming uh, out today. I know that you'll have many other opportunities here in Washington, not least of which you could be at your beach house. But thank you for being here. Uh, I also want to thank Cato for inviting me to make this presentation. I could not have written this book without their, their support. And uh, I'm very, very grateful to them for doing this. So here's the book. Here are the various chapters. Um, of the book, and I'd like to explain why I came to become interested in this topic very briefly. I actually tell the story a bit in, in the introduction to the book. Uh, years ago, when I was in college at the University of Virginia, um, my professors were telling me that the world was coming to an end. They assigned things like silent spring, the limits to growth, uh, and of course, the population bomb. And being somewhat naive, I kind of believed them. I was basically saying, my future is very bleak, and I'll probably be dead in the next 20 years or so. Well, 20 years later, I was working for Forbes magazine, and I noticed that we were still here. So I had the idea that I would go back and reread these classics and then go to the people who wrote them and ask them, you know, what, how did you get it wrong? And I fully expected them basically to say, well, we got it wrong this way or that way. And it didn't work out that way. It turned out when I called up Paul Ehrlich, for example, and chatted with him and would go through the 1968 version of the book, eBay, uh, the, uh, the Population Bomb, he said, well, I got my timing wrong, Ron. And I go, really? So when are the famines going to happen? They're going to happen between, this was 1990 uh, when I called him up. He said the famines will, uh, come, will come out between year 2000 and 2010. Still hasn't happened, Paul. Uh, I went to MIT and talked to the folks who did the limits to growth, and they got very, I spent all day with them going through page by page of the limits to growth. And essentially, they um, uh, told me, well, all right, we overemphasized the material resources side a little too much. Uh, and I go, well, have you told the New York Times that? You're on the front page of the paper. And no. So essentially, I discovered that, if you will, uh, environmentalism was not about science. It's essentially a kind of ideology. And so I wrote my first book, EcoScam, based on a series of articles I wrote in Forbes magazine on that. So, but when I was signing my book contract for EcoScam, my editor, uh, Tom Dunn, who is also the editor of this book, uh, told me after it was over, he said, Ron, I just want to tell you, if you brought me a book that, told, that, that argued that the, the world was going to come to an end soon, I could have made you a rich man. I have still not been able to come up with that book. In any case, so this book. This is a depiction, if you will, of the, um, uh, the, the Four Horsemen of the Christian Apocalypse. And they're typically known as war, pestilence, famine, and death. And the good news is all four of them in, are in retreat. War is in retreat. If you've read uh, Steven Pinker's fabulous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, you will realize that 
we are living in a time when the chances of being killed in violent conflict are less than they've ever been in all of human history. Pestilence, thanks to vac vaccinations and, and modern sanitation and, and so forth, uh, our chances of dying of infectious disease are greatly in retreat. Uh, with regard to famine, the amount of calories per capita has increased from 2,400 per person in 1960 to over 3,000 per person now on planet Earth. Obviously, there's still some people who are hungry, but there's the lowest percentage of people who are suffering at the edge of hunger than in all of human history before, despite the fact our population has dramatically increased. Even death is in retreat. In 1950, the average life expectancy was somewhere on planet Earth was somewhere around 40 years, and today it is over 70 years. So all four of those are gone. So I've structured my talk. Whoops, don't have a very heavy hand on this. All right, back, back, there we go. Why are you doing this? One, okay. Anyway, I couldn't come up with a better way of doing this, but I'm saying the four horsemen of modern uh, abundance, peak population, peak farmland, peak pollution, and peak nothing. So let's go to peak population. This is the aforementioned Paul Ehrlich. This is what he said in 1968 in the, uh, limit, uh, the population bomb. And basically, there were going to be hundreds of millions of people starving in the 1970s. That didn't happen. Nevertheless, this is Paul. Still, he's still out there, still writing. And in 2013, in the Proceedings of the Royal uh, Society B, he wrote the following. The human predicament is driven by overpopulation, overconsumption of natural resources, the use of unnecessarily environmentally um, uh, damaging technologies, and socioeconomic political arrangements to service Homo sapiens aggregate consumption. And by socioeconomic political arrangements, he means free market capitalism. Do not doubt that. All right, back there. Okay. So what did happen? So instead of starving to death, what happened is, is that total fertility rate on planet Earth has been declining rather steeply. In 1970, the average woman on planet Earth had about five children, and it's now down to 2.45 and continues to drop. Uh, the, conventionally speaking, people often refer to the data that's put out by the United Nations every two years on demographics. And what you find is, is that the, uh, typically, everyone treats the solid line, which is the median projection, as the more likely one. But as it turns out, as we see, the bottom line has been more, the more likely. And if that continues, if that trend continues, world population will top out in the middle of the century between 8 and 9 billion and begin declining. Um, really. OK. One more. No. Okay, there we go. This is uh, some work done by demographers at the International Institute for Systems Analysis, where they've looked at UN uh, projections and so forth, and what they believe is likely to occur is the bottom line. Again, world population topping out at, at around 9 billion in uh, the middle of the century and beginning to decline. And they, again, find that the low variant seems to be the one that goes. And why is this happening? Largely because as, as people get wealthier, they have fewer children. And what you find is exactly that relationship here. In places, unfortunately, like Mali and Niger, which are incomes below, do it that way. Okay. Uh, people in, in, in Mali and Niger, have uh, women still have about seven children per capita. 
uh, over the course of our lifetime. Whereas if you find it, when it gets to around $10,000 per capita, it goes to below replacement. In fact, every one of the OECD countries except Mexico, and Mexico is on the verge of that, already has uh, a total fertility rates below 2.1, which is the replacement rate. So what is likely to occur? Uh, this is a demographer who works uh, in, at the Spanish Foundation for Science and Technology, again, showing that the lower trend is the more likely trend. And this is uh, a demographer at Deutsche Bank, Sanjeev Sanyal, who thinks that in 15 years, in 15 years, basically, we will have achieved um, a, a, a replacement rate for the globe of 2.1 children or below. And so the population will begin declining. I believe that those are the more likely trends, and I, I discuss why that is the case. But it's largely the case because one of the things that we do know is that as women become more educated and have more opportunities in market economies, they have fewer children. Also, the trends to urbanization as well. One of the interesting features of, of people like Ehrlich, they, um, the goal of almost all species is, to, um, is basically to turn more food into more offspring. Humans don't do that. The places that have the greatest food security are the places with the lowest uh, fertility rates, and the places with the greatest food insecurity are the places that have the most, the highest fertility rates. So it's quite the opposite then. So does everyone know who this man is? Who is Norman Borlaug? <laughs> he is the father of the Green Revolution. I had the great privilege of getting to know him um, in the 90s and in the, in the early 20s. Uh, early part of the 21st century. He's a great man. He is the person who probably saved the most human lives of any person on, uh, in, in the history of the world by doing the Green Revolution. He essentially was uh, enabled a process whereby the world was able to triple food supplies uh, while the population doubled. So it's likely to occur in the future. This is Jesse Ausable. He's the director of the uh, Rockefeller uh, University uh, Human Environment Program. And this is uh, from some research they published back in 2012. They believe that we are on the verge, if not already at, peak farmland. Essentially, uh, crop productivity is going to get even more efficient over time. That They believe that by 2060, an area, at least the area uh, the size of France, or twice the size of France, will be returned to nature. That farmers will abandon that many fields. In fact, he also says, if we could just get rid of biofuels, it'll be even vastly more than that. It would be an area twice the size of the eastern United States would be. But the biofuel problem is a problem. Um, as I mentioned before, this is what happened. Uh, yields, basically, for our main grain crops tripled since the 1960s. Um, what you find is that you find here is the yield gap. It is people are saying we don't have the technologies to increase yields, but the point is that uh, the United States yields are about ten times higher than yields in Africa. Still, those technologies still need to be deployed around the world, and we can using current technologies, no miracle technologies, what we already know, to dramatically increase yields. Uh, as I mentioned, the amount of calories has been going up since the 1960s to today. And because of the peak farmland phenomenon, because we have so dramatically improved productivity on croplands, this is what the difference is. If we had st been stuck at 1960s levels of productivity, we would have had to plow down three times as much land as we currently use for crops. Uh, this has been decoupled, and basically the amount of cropland has gone up just a little bit since the 1960s to supply those three times more food 
than, uh, th today than we were producing then. What would have happened uh, if we'd had to do that is what is referred to as skinhead Earth. We would have had to plow down pretty much all the remaining forests on planet Earth. Even then, it probably wouldn't have worked. But that is the amount of land that would have had to be used, the area of USA, Canada, China, or almost twice the size of South America if we had been stuck at 1960s levels of productivity. As a result of our increasing productivity, the forests are returning in most places. Unfortunately, in misgoverned places like Indonesia and Brazil and the Congo, um, we are still finding uh, rainforests are being uh, cut down, uh, probably unnecessarily so. The good news is, is that plantation forestry, Roger Sedjo has estimated, uh, we could grow all the wood that we would need for everything, paper, building, whatever we need it for, on about 10% of the world's forest land. And we are moving in that direction very rapidly. And that would, again, spare wild forests uh, uh, from being plowed down or used. Part of the reason that this is going on is what is called the environmental Kuznets curve. As countries become richer over time, they start demanding a cleaner, better, richer environment. What happens is, is the notion here is, is that poor people, when they start economic development, the process of economic development, they're not overly concerned about air quality or water quality. They're more interested in getting food on the table, getting their kids educated, getting a better house, basically getting better material life. But at a certain point, uh, when they get rich enough, they look around and go, I really don't like the crap in the air and in the water. And they begin the process of technological improvement and environmental improvement where things get better. Basically, uh, the line is that anything that slows down economic development will slow down eventual environmental cleanup. Richer is cleaner. Richer is not dirtier. Richer is cleaner. And as a brief, brief bit of evidence for that, here is some data from the EPA. And the EPA cannot be wrong, so it must be the case. Um, what you find is uh, for air pollution trends in the United States, there are six criteria pollutants that are... That are um, now they have carbon dioxide, but before that, there were things like sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, and ozone that are regulated by the EPA, more or less uh, efficiently. And what you find is that as uh, the economy doubled in size, as vehicle miles increased by over 150%, energy consumption, population, and CO2 emissions all went up by 50%, the air pollutants went down by 60%. Richer is cleaner. Ah, the vexed question of global warming. What is going on with that? Uh, this is data showing, comparing the satellite and surface uh, data trends over time. And, what, and basically, there are three surface data uh, that are mostly relied upon. Uh, these are basically uh, series that are set up using thermometers on land and, uh, and, and thermometers at sea, if you will, trying to figure out what the temperature was over the last 150 years or so. And then the satellites have been up uh, monitoring the temperature of the globe since 1979. And so this is a comparison. And what you find is out toward the, if you will, the end there, as we get closer to 2015, is that it's kind of flattened out. This is the famous hiatus. Temperatures have not been going up as fast as had been projected. Well, this, unfortunately, annoys some people. Um, this is a new, the, the results of a new study uh, put out uh, by researchers at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, 
administration where they basically find that there's been no hiatus. And the way that they found this is they went and rejiggered the temperatures, the ocean temperatures, to, go, to, to increase. And the way they did that is a very interesting way, and there are some people questioning it, is they took very accurate data from uh, the series of, of uh, automated buoys that are traveling the oceans. It's very accurate uh, on that. And they've only been out there 10 or 15 years. And then they increased it based on the fact that they thought the old crappy data from ships and so forth was better. So making better data worse is how you get this trend, is one way of putting it. Uh, it's very creative science, and we'll see if it stands up. Um, this is uh, what the, I tend to rely on the folks who do the satellite data at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. And what they find is that the uh, temperature of the globe is, is increasing at, at 0.1 degrees Celsius per decade over time, which is not a lot. Um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is doing, uh, tried to compare the models that they have with, um, uh, with the actual uh, data from, uh, very, from various groups, the satellites and so forth. And Christie, who is the guy from the University of Alabama at Huntsville, has done the same thing. And basically what you find at the bottom there uh, is the satellite data and the balloon data. And what you find is that the model data, are the models are running much higher than the actual temperatures are in the globe, at the globe at the moment. And he makes this much more clearly, more clear schematically, the models are running too hot. Uh, the folks at uh, University of uh, Alabama at Huntsville are not the only people. The, another group called Remote Sensing Systems has found the same thing. This is their comparison of the data. And again, you find the yellow area is the model projections of where temperature should be. And what you find is at the bottom, the, the thick line, the actual temperature data. And that's also the case for the tropics. And though they do find that uh, the models are more or less accurate with what is happening at the North Pole. We can discuss global warming during the question and answers. Peak everything. Uh, are we, is the world running on empty is the way I put it. This is um, Richard Heinberg. He works at the Post Carbon Institute. He's written a book called Beyond the Limits of Growth. And as, he, as you say, the world is at, nearing, or past the points of peak production of a number of critical non-renewable resources, including oil, natural gas, coal, as well as many economically important minerals ranging from intimidy to zinc. Uh, he's not alone. Remember peak oil, everybody? Yeah, very popular. The German-based uh, Energy Watch Group released a report uh, in 2007 that basically said that uh, oil will drop 3% a year from now on and will be half of what it was by 2030. And this will create war, pam war famine, uh, pestilence, and what have you. In fact, uh, Jeff, uh, uh, what's his name, Deffies, Kenneth Deffies at Princeton wrote a book on peak oil, uh, Herbert's Peak is what he called it, and he predicted, he actually said oil peaked on Thanksgiving Day 2005. As it turns out, in 2005, the average amount of oil, the daily production of oil was about 83 uh, million barrels per day. It is now 93 million barrels per day as of this year. It, it certainly didn't peak. This is um, uh, Leonardo Mulgari, who's at the Belfer Center, who's a, an oil man, who has made this projection, which I think is likely to be the case. 
that we will be up to 110 million barrels, up from 93 million now. And as we all know, the prices did go up. We were part of a super cycle, and the prices did go up. But I was listening on the radio this morning. It's now below $49 per barrel. It's fallen again. Now, I do discuss in the chapter what super cycles are like. Um, the idea here is, is that you, some economists believe that they've been able to identify if you will, waves of economic development, whereby various parts of the globe start rapidly improving their economic situation, the United States and Britain in the 19th century, Germany and Japan in the 20th century, China most recently. And what happens is the demand for all kinds of commodities goes up very, very rapidly. And the prices, of course, start going up. And the argument is, is that we were going through uh, the, the, the up phase of a super cycle during the beginning of this, of this century. And the argument is, and it's very hard to always pick a peak, but the argument is now that China's economic growth rate is settling down and so forth, that the commodity prices should start descending. And in fact, they are descending. Interestingly, after every other super cycle, the price of commodities became, was lower than the last trough, uh, uh, the, the preceding super cycle. So we'll see if that happens. But in any case, this is the limits to growth. Uh, they have a very har har uh, helpful little chart in the middle there, which would tell you how long uh, known reserves of various minerals would last. And um, what you find is in 1972, all of these things were supposed to be gone basically by the year 2000 if the, of known reserves. They did, in fact, do a, a five times analysis, assuming you know, that uh, there are, you could find five times more, and it should last a little bit longer. But this was the main uh, pr prediction. This is, uh, this, I, th I hope people will recognize this gentleman. This is Julian Simon, uh, one of my great heroes. Uh, he, he's wearing the horns because he decided, if they're going to demonize me, I may as well look like it. So um, in any case. I go through the U.S. Geological Survey, known reserve estimates, and as you can see, there's plenty more coming. Um, we have plenty of supplies. Now, what people tend to forget is, is that we don't, miners and, and, and uh, developers don't go out and try to find every last reserve. You find it as you need it, as prices signal that you should find it, spend the money and in the investment on it. So these horizons, if you will, for all these reserves, tend to just be maintained about this level every year. It remains the same. You can go back to the US Geological Survey, and it's very similar to that throughout. Um, uh, I may as well just go back to, uh, to the Simon. I, I assume that most people know the Simon bet, but I'll recount it here. Uh, in 1980, Simon and Ehrlich uh, bet on uh, five metals and what their prices would be. Ehrlich was convinced that their prices were going to go way up, and uh, Simon said that by 1990, they would be down. Uh, in 1990, Ehrlich and his colleagues sent a check to uh, Simon for, I think it was $567.07, which meant the prices had gone down by more than 50%. But you have to be careful about that. These super cycles can mess you up, if Simon had made the same bet, let's say in 2003 to 2013, he would have owed $2,500 to uh, Ehrlich. So you have to be careful about that particular thing. But 
the question is, has the latest super cycle peaked? And I, I looked at some of the metal prices here, and you can find that they are now about 50% lower than they were during the peak um, years of, uh, that are listed there. And this is a uh, commodity price index chart uh, just from uh, earlier to, uh, this month uh, from the IMF. And what you find is, again, uh, a lot of them are back down to where they were at around 2,500. And the question is, will they go back to where they were at the end of the 20th century? My bet is that they will. We will find out. Uh, so I think the right question is, is it realistic, realistic to predict that knowledge accumulation is so powerful as to outweigh the physical limits of physical capital services and the limited substitution of possibilities for natural resources? Basically, are, is human ingenuity uh, sufficiently productive that we, are all, that we will never run out of anything that is a critical resource, that we will find ways of substituting it? I think the answer is yes, and I, make, I hope I make the case very strongly in the book that that is the case. So, this is my conclusion. <laughs> Doomsday is postponed again. This is, this is available now. It was published just two days ago. Uh, it makes a wonderful bar mitzvah, wedding, anniversary, birthday gift. You can't have too many copies. Anyway, thank you again for listening, and I will love to hear what your, your responses and questions might be. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Our next speaker is Indur Goklani. Indur is a science and technology policy analyst at the United States Department of the Interior, where he holds the position of Assistant Director of Programs, no. Science. I'm here as an independent. Uh, but he's here as an independent, uh, independent scholar. Um, in the past, he has represented the United States um, at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and during the negotiations that led to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. He's the author of Clearing the Air, The Precautionary Principle, and then uh, Cato's own The Improving State of the World. Goklani holds undergraduate and graduate degrees in electrical engineering. His BTEC degree is from the Indian Institute of Technology, and his MS and PhD are from Michigan State University. Please help me welcome Indur Goklani. It's easy to be gentle. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at Cato and to be asked to comment on Ron Bailey's end of doom. Ron has done us all a favor by providing an overview of six major ways so-called environmentalists say humanity or the planet is doomed. Uh, and he also has a chapter on something called the precautionary principle, which captures one of environmentalists' favored approaches to addressing anything that might disrupt the status quo Including, it, including improving it potentially, unless it's a step back to the age of hunters and gatherers, in which case they seem to be quite for it. I highly recommend this book. It's very well researched. It's an easy read. It touches on the major arguments made by protagonists on both sides of the narratives of doom. His conclusions are clear and drawn for the most part logically from the available evidence. And if you haven't been immersed in these issues, and even if you have, I guarantee you'll learn a lot from them, from it. Uh, I generally agree with Ron's take on most of the issues addressed in this book, but there are a few exceptions. 
And most of these go to the to nuance and characterization of the issue at hand. But I have one major caveat, and I'll get to that. But first, with the, with the quibbles. First, with respect to population, there are indeed a lot of uh, different projections regarding what the population level would be. Is it going to be 8.9 or 9? Is it going to peak at 8.9, 9.6, or 11 billion? Uh, you know, uh, th you have all these. I think that misses the most important point. The, the really important point is regardless of what it is going to peak at, whether you take the higher, uh, higher estimate or the uh, lower estimates, we are able to feed that population regardless. And I think that's important because otherwise you get lost in the weeds. Uh, in the late 1990s, I did an analysis which showed that the world could feed a population of 11.4 billion by 2050. Hunger could be reduced, and we could also reduce land to the rest of nature. Since that time, matters have actually improved. When, we, uh, when I did that analysis, everybody was thinking that uh, agricultural productivity was going to decline. But in fact, it doesn't look like it's, that's happened. Since that time, we have had GM crops come online, and they work despite what anybody might tell you. And they are safe on top of that. And the other thing is that precision agri agriculture is coming along. And it's coming along quite well and will be coming on gangbusters once you start having drones and things like that. So given that, I think the real issue isn't what the peak population would be, but whether we can feed the population and return land to nature regardless of its size. And I think if you go through the analysis, that's the thing. I think we are getting hung up on the wrong things when you worry about at what level it will peak. Now, but let me be a little cautious here. I, I say that we can feed the population, but I'm a little bit more skeptical whether we'll in fact be able to do that. And the reason for that is that, first of all, as Ron mentioned, a lot of land is going to uh, for biofuels and stuff like that. So if we are taking la land that could be used, um, if we really needed it for food, we are using it to make biofuels and stuff like that. The other thing is that for, for every agricultural technology that enhances net productivity, there's some environmental group that is opposed to it. Consider our experience related to GM crops. GM crops have caught on in the United States. They just aren't getting going any place, it seems, in Europe fast. And because of the, uh, the example of the Europeans, even Africans are going very slowly. You'd think they'd be jumping for it, but there's a real problem, is that they're relying on, on a lot of their science on so-called folks in the U European Union. And I think, unfortunately, they're, uh, are, are, and they are going with the European Union's example rather than the US example or even the Chinese example or the Indian example. India and China is not moving as fast as they should, but at least they're uh, making steps in that direction. The same story is there for uh, pesticides and fertilizers. So essentially, the arguments against productivity um, enhancing technologies are based on some form of the precautionary principle. But foregoing these technologies would mean foregoing the benefits of these technologies, which itself creates risks. Because of this, 
Ron and others, uh, Cass and Stein, um, and Julian Morris, for example, they argue that the precautionary principle is incoherent, and they give it pretty short shrift as a legitimate policy tool. My take on the precautionary principle is somewhat different. I say that we should follow through on the precautionary principle to its bitter end. What, what does that mean? That means that you have to apply the precautionary principle not only to the consequences of the technology that you are examining, but also the consequences of not having that technology. That is, in fact, the only logical approach you've got. It's a, it's a correct analytical approach. It is the logical approach. And actually, whenever I've dealt with this, it is also um, rhetorically, it's very hard to refute. And I've applied my broad version of the precautionary principle, carrying it to its logical conclusion um, on, uh, on DDT, on GM crops, and even on global warming. And what we find is that when you consider not just the consequences of GM crops and DDT, but also the consequence of not using DDT and GM crops, you, uh, one comes to the conclusion that the public health uh, risks and the risks to the, uh, uh, to the environment are actually uh, magnified if you turn these technologies down. So I find that a global ban on DDT would not be justified. A global uh, ban on, um, and a ban on GM crops um, uh, would not be justified. Now, that does not mean that in each and every case, you, uh, uh, you, you'd say it's okay. There are situations perhaps where you don't need it. For example, DDT is no longer an important matter for the United States. We don't need it for malaria. We don't have that much malaria. And it's unlikely that we will, as long as our public health system isn't broken down. But uh, for places in uh, South Africa and, things, and, and uh, other places, it's still useful. Every time they, uh, a country has turned it off and got back on it, we, we, see, the, uh, we see it in the data. When you turn it off, uh, uh, malaria cases rise, and when you turn it back on, they fall. Hey, that's as good a correlation as you'll get for anything. Now, uh, and when you apply it to uh, uh, greenhouse gases, I find that if you go beyond Secular improvements in technology and elimination of unjustified energy subsidies, uh, what you end up doing is you end up retarding economic development and you'll increase hunger and mortality, diminish life expectancy, worsen and worsen health, especially in the developing countries. On the other hand, if you focus on solving the problems that are exacerbated by climate change, or and we work on enhancing economic development, we would enhance uh, a global uh, uh, human well-being more rapidly and more certainly than via emission reductions. Now, in this, I end up almost exactly where um, Ron ends up to. We essentially say the same thing, but I've, I've derived my thing from using the precaution, using a broad approach to the uh, precautionary principle. And, um, and I think that's really important that we keep using the precautionary principle, but we use it in a, in, in a, in a manner that is not selective. 
what I mean is you've got to uh, uh, look at not only the risks that are eliminated when you, uh, when you, uh, when you uh, 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 use a technology, but you, also, uh, you should also use it, of course, for the risks that might be created if you use that technology. But what this means is that when you use the precautionary principle, you should use it in a fashion that weighs the risk created versus the risk eliminated. So I, I say that we have to go from the precautionary principle to its logical consequence, which is risk versus risk analysis. And uh, to do anything less is actually uh, intellectually dishonest because you're only looking at one side of the equation. And you're also not looking at the opportunity costs of, uh, of giving up, uh, say, GM technology or something like that. So having said that, I think Ron goes a little bit too easy on the purveyors of doom when it comes to global warming. Ron says that man-made climate change is a problem, but it does not portend the end of the world. Elsewhere, he writes that it could become a significant problem as the 21st century unfolds. I think he comes to this science because he focuses more on the physical science of climate change rather than on the impacts of climate change in the present and the future. There is no present day evidence that fossil fuels and associated technologies have diminished aggregate human or environmental well-being. Crop yields continue to rise. Ron showed us that diagram. Uh, Cropland is at or near its peak. Human well-being continues to improve. Life expectancy is up, up, we are healthier, et cetera. Uh, Access to safe water is up. Death rates are, uh, from extreme uh, events are down 98% since the 20th century. Sea level uh, rise is not accelerating, if at all. The, and the world is greener and more productive. In fact, one of the little known things about the IPCC report is that it tells us that the world, that the biosphere is more productive today than it was in pre-industrial pre times. It's mind-blowing. Think about it. How could that be? We have, uh, we have cut down swaths of land for pasture, for crops, etc., etc., and yet we are producing more land. In fact, satellites tell us that we are greener today than we were 30 years ago. Well, we didn't have satellites before that, but at least the calculation that they have done tell us we are greener today and the biosphere is more productive than in pre-industrial crimes. That's incredible. How did that happen? That happened actually because of a reliance on fossil fuels. When we rely on fossil, when, when I talk about reliance on fossil fuels, we are not only relying on it for energy, we are also relying on it for producing food. Virtually all the food that, 60% of the food that we, uh, we have today is, is there because of fertilizers and pesticides. On top of that, because we are using fossil fuel energy, we are no longer using animal power for energy. Uh, for energy. And and for work. It used to be all the work was done either by human beings or their animals or their livestock. Today we don't have that. It used to be in the, that in the early part of this, of the last century, uh, the 20th century, 27% of our cropland was devoted to producing food for the livestock that was, that was being used to do work on the farms and, 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 uh, and, and, trans and transport goods. We don't have that anymore. So that 20, what happened to that 27%? It can now be used for 
growing food. Unfortunately, uh, we, a lot of it's now being diverted towards uh, uh, biofuels. Okay, so at present, there is no indication that climate change is a problem for human well-being or, or for the rest of nature. In fact, because fossil fuels have actually reduced our reliance on nature for producing the things that we need and that we used to rely upon for um, uh, on the rest of nature. And because of that, we are, that's why we are at uh, close to peak cropland and peak pasture and everything else. And uh, but. Of course, the argument is it's not the present, it's the future. Well, what about the future? As Ron notes, models have been overstating uh, our, uh, uh, the degree of warming that we'd be getting. And, uh, and the overstatement is at least two to fourfold, it seems, today. Now, once you start looking at uh, uh, model results, they don't, do, uh, they, they don't do particularly well when it comes to temperature at the global level, but they do a whole lot worse when you go to the regional level, not only in terms of temperature, but also in terms of precipitation. And precipitation is much more important uh, for, for human life and animal life and plant life, in fact, all forms of life, than temperature is. At that level, when you run the models, you can't even be sure whether whether the, uh, uh, first of all, you can't be sure what the magnitude of uh, precipitation change will be. But more importantly, you can't be sure what the direction of change is. Uh, is, the, is precipitation going to go up or is it going to go down? If you can't, uh, if you can't do that, if you, uh, if you can't be confident about that, you can't use those models for much, much for anything. Now, the standard operating procedure in doing impact assessments uh, of, uh, of climate change is to run, is essentially, they've already run all these models, they have uh, results for different parts of the world. They never stop to say, hey, how does this, how does this model uh, function for the area that I'm looking at? They just go to the, they, they just go to the, um, uh, uh, to the sites where the data are kept and they just use those without checking whether how well the current models are performing there. Or if they do, they use these algorithms to try to try to get them to match up. Okay, they call this downscaling and stuff like that. But you know, nobody knows how well they work. So you cannot give a whole lot of credence to them. But uh, despite that, that's how everything proceeds. They do not fully account for technological change. In, uh, and in particular, technological change that you cannot identify as being belonging to an existing technology. So because of, and if you do that, uh, if you were to do that, say, with respect to uh, death rates from, uh, from uh, extreme weather events, uh, what that means is that we'd be having the same, suppose we started off our uh, calculation in the 1920s. Then today, the death rate would be, according to this methodology, the same. Uh, but since that time, death rates have actually dropped 98%. So you'd be off by almost two orders of magnitude right there. And uh, uh, if, you do, if you were to do the same thing for malaria, you'd be off by a, uh, more than an order of magnitude again. So 
if you do not take technological change into account, even if your climate models were perfect, and we know that they are not, you'd still be off by uh, uh, an order of magnitude or two, uh, so. So you really cannot trust the model results that are getting. There's, and nobody has, as far as I know, ever done an end-to-end -end analysis of the error bars uh, that you have when you do a climate impact analysis. They don't look at the, uh, the maximum, uh, they'll tell you with respect to what the uncertainty is, they run different scenarios, and th that's the uncertainty. But that is bounded. But if you look at it, and in, in the total thing, nobody has any idea what the uh, magnitude of the error bars are. And uh, anyway, despite my skepticism about that, I looked at, um, I, I, uh, I looked at a series of uh, uh, analyses of the impacts of global warming that were run by the, uh, for the British government. And I took a scenario, uh, uh, took the scenario that they had that produced four degrees warming between 1990 and 2085. And I tried to compare what would be the magnitude of mortality from, uh, from uh, uh, vector-borne diseases represented by malaria, by uh, extreme weather events, and, uh, and hunger. And I found that only uh, that less than 13% of total deaths from th these th uh, cumulative deaths from these causes in the year 2085 would be due to global warming. That means it's a fraction. It's about a seventh or an eighth, okay? Closer to an eighth. Uh, if you take a look at uh, what it did to water resources, actually there'd be fewer people um, uh, at risk of water shortage in 2085 than they, uh, than, uh, because of warming than they would be in the absence of warming. And the reason for this is very simple. More warming means more evaporation of water. You have more water, uh, and, and this more water comes down on the earth. And it so happens that more of, uh, more of this water rains down in China and India, in parts of China and India, which are heavily populated than the rest of the world. But in any case, the, the population at net risk of global water shortage, of, of water shortages goes down. And uh, similarly, because um, the analyses also show that the biosphere's productivity is actually going to be up in the future than it is, uh, than it is today. And, and that uh, essentially uh, more or less confirms the same finding that the IPCC has, where it shows that today's uh, the productivity is greater than what it was in pre-industrial times. <coughs> the other things, of course, if you take a look at uh, net, net GDP, uh, by which I mean, take a look at the GDP, subtract from, from that the damages due to uh, global warming, then you find that even under the most extreme uh, uh, damage estimation, which was done by Nicholas Stern, you find that the developed and developing nations' populations in the future, they'll be far better off in the future than they are today. And in fact, they found that even developing countries would, um, would have double the current US level of net GDP uh, in 2100 under the warmest scenario. 
and they also find that the lowest net GDP is, is under the poorest uh, scenario, but highest under the warmest scenario. So all this tells me is that um, you, you can't say it could be a problem, uh, global warming could be a problem in the future, but really there's no evidence to back it up. Okay. And, uh, and it's certainly not clear that it would be a significant one at the global level. Now, there, there will be issues, places where it could be a, pro a, a problem here or there, but there's a big difference between, it's a global, warming might be a global phenomenon, but it doesn't follow that it's a global problem. Okay. Okay, all that said, let's now, what's the major difference that I have with Ron? Ron says things will be okay for the future. I am not all that confident. And the reason for that is that I'm not so scared by the, story, by the narratives of doom as much as I am by the policies that are being instituted to forestall that doom. And, and these policies include, for example, uh, uh, reliance on the precautionary principle. It, um, we, we, and, what we are, and all the rules and regulations that are being put in place Essentially, what we are doing is that we are uh, actually, uh, it's like the, the gulliver of creativity is being tied up by little rules here, little rules there, so that essentially, and then these, uh, being tied up with these little strings is being held down by uh, groups and individuals that have something to gain from the perpetuation of these rules. And because of that, it will be very hard for the economy to free itself and start, and, 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 and start the process by which it can actually generate more economic growth sufficient to break out of this thing. And that's what makes me a little skeptical about the future. It's not the, it's not, uh, the doom itself, but the policies that are being instituted and they are being bureaucratized to, uh, to forestall what folks perceive as the reasons for doom. And that's my major difference with Ron, but I don't think it's a major one. Okay. Thank you. We'll now open it to Q&A. Please wait to be called on, um, wait for the microphone. And then, if you could please tell us your uh, uh, your name and affiliation. So, are there any questions for the uh, for our two speakers? Yeah, first one in the back, right in the back. Hi, I'm Martin Worcester. I haven't had an affiliation since 1988. Um, First off, I want to thank the Cato Institute for making this book cheaper than EcoScam. I know I was there. Um, question for Ron. Uh, given that these two books are somewhat similar, uh, do you find that the supporters of resource exhaustion are just making the same arguments, or are they coming up with bad new ones? Uh, in, in a certain sense, you're right, by the way. Uh, part of the reason the genesis of this particular book is I, I was uh, sitting with uh, 
Jerry Taylor, who was at the Cato Institute at the time, and he said, um, why don't we update EcoScan? I was going, okay. And so it was his idea. I want to give him credit for it. And uh, basically what I've tried to do is, is to go back to EcoScan, and I made certain predictions in there that the world was going to become a better place, and it turned out that I was right. 20 years later. And so this is looking for the next, if you will, 20, 30 years or so. Uh, with regard to uh, resource exhaustion, they're making the same arguments again. They never, it, it literally is no creativity to the thinking. Uh, prices go up, which indicates scarcity, but then it doesn't indicate that it's not, they don't realize that it's a signal then for entrepreneurs and inventors to figure out ways to supply the need. And that is always static thinking that there's only so much resource and we're going to just use it all up. And it's, it's, not, it's not really new or creative, unfortunately. Well, or maybe fortunately. It's just not very smart. Uh, Arnold Kling, um, let me ask you to put your fiction hat on for a moment. And Matt, I, I've noticed that... Uh, some, some readers may think that that's what I'm doing, but I'm not. <laughs> um, I've noticed that uh, at colleges and universities, it seems like the hip thing to do is to have a sustainability <coughs> initiative yeah, and yeah. to appoint an administrator to have in, to you know make sure that the college or university operates more sustainably. Suppose that you were that administrator, what would you what would you do or say? Well, I would I would take it out of the ecology department immediately. <coughs> um, the uh, the I do have a long discussion in the book about what sustainability might mean over the future, and and I point that point out that from the point from the point of view of all of human history, no civilization has been sustainable. They've all collapsed in one point or another. By collapse, it means they've got significantly <coughs> reorganized in some ways. Not that everybody starved to death, but you know every everything went away. And the only civilization that, that is likely to be sustainable is the one that is, is basically um, free market capitalism, if you will. And, we're go and we'll find out if that is the case. And I, I explain why that is, or try to argue that is because uh, markets and democratic politics are the best way for getting signals when something's going wrong that we have, that no other civilization had before. Uh, all others... Uh, and this is a long discussion, all other civilizations were natural states which were basically top-down patron-client networks. We are different. We work from the bottom up. Information can percolate up. The problem is, as Ender uh, indicated, is our regulatory state is trying to recreate, if you will, uh, patron-client networks where the government supplies subsidies and, and goodies to favored groups, and that could slow the process down. If that is the case, then we'll just end up like the rest of civilizations, we will, in fact, uh, decline and perhaps collapse. I don't think that's the way it's going to go. I think we're too smart for that. I also think that, uh, I think it, uh, David Friedman's arg argument might be true, is that technology will be so good as that we'll be able to outrun the damage that government can cause. Uh, I at least have that hope, and I try to make that argument in the book. I hope that was responsive, but I would probably, if I were doing that, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't have a sustainability one. I would have an entrepreneurship program instead. Razia? Ken Dillon, Ciencia Press. Which do you perceive as a bigger threat to the world's food supply? The Is the mic on? Is the mic on? 
Hello? Okay. The, the uh, growing extent of, uh, of uh, biofuel crops or the upgrading of diets among uh, large numbers, for instance, of Chinese that <clears throat> are going up into protein uh, diet uh, that requires much more extensive use of cropland. Sure. Uh, neither. Uh, first of all, biofuels is a tremendous problem. I don't, and I'm, I'm trusting, and I'm hoping we won't get in, go further down that line. We subsidize it into existence, and if we remove some of the subsidies of that, that, that solves the problem largely in many ways. Uh, it is tragically the case that the amount of calories that are produced uh, for uh, the corn supply in the United States could, in fact, feed everybody in Africa, notionally speaking. I mean, we're burning that much corn that could literally alleviate hunger in Africa in a notional sense. We're wasting that many calories. In a sense, we're going back to what Ender was saying is we're now, instead of raising livestock to feed them grain to run our plows and so forth, we're running our SUVs off of it. And so that is a problem. Um, I don't, perhaps I'm too hopeful, but I think that the shall we say, the, even the environmental community has recognized that this is a really stupid waste of resources. So there's going to be political pressure put, put back against that. So I'm, I'm hoping that will go away. With regard to uh, upgrading uh, foods, there, I, I don't... That, that is going to happen. As people get richer, they do want uh, more meat. Uh, but there are lots of different ways of doing that. For example, uh, aquaculture is becoming incredibly efficient now. And there's a move uh, to uh, doing fish farming, feeding them, if you will, soybeans and proteins in that way. And so tilapia takes uh, a little over two pounds to create a pound of meat, whereas it takes 10 pounds of grain to create a, a pound of, of beef. If prices equilibrate, as we hope they will, then people will shift down, if you will, to other forms of protein would be my argument. But even more, I, I have to say, I did write a, an article. Uh, I'm, I'm all about endism, apparently. It was about the end of farming. And what I'm really looking to is that there's some technologies out there where you're going to be able to produce milk using genetically modified yeast. And you could notionally eliminate all dairy farms that way, which in the United States would save something like 25 million acres of land. Or there are also companies, as you know, that are trying to culture meat in vats. And again, some analysis basically shows that you can reduce resource consumption on average by, uh, down, by 97% doing that. So I'm, I, I'm looking beyond farming. I'm thinking that the way people are getting at food is going to not be just the, to gra raise it across the landscape anymore, that we are going to get more efficient using other technologies to supply us with food that is as tasty and as good as anything we got otherwise. So don't, don't just look at the farming projections. Look at other technologies that are out there that are probably going to solve these problems. Did you want to comment on this? I wanted to comment on that uh, sustainability question. I think the problem with sustainability is that uh, uh, when it was first devised, uh, the idea was that it would, uh, there were three basic tools, uh, uh, three, three basic uh, uh, pillars on which it was built. One was economic sustainability, in ecological sustainability, and social sustainability. And what's happened, I think, is that the emphasis is now more towards social and ecological rather than 
on the economic side. But my take on that is that if it is not economically sustainable, it will collapse on its own because the other two uh, uh, pillars don't, can't stand by themselves. And uh, you, know, you can do what you want, but ultimately that's what it takes to be sustainable. Uh, and, uh, uh, I think that is, uh, and, and, and uh, without economic sustainability, you do not have the sufficient condition for sustainability. And a lot of people seem to forget that. Right here. Hi, um, Raj uh, Boya, a DC resident. Um, I'm kind of curious to know uh, your thoughts on um, high usage of antibiotics, growth hormones, mm -hmm. and uh, how animals are fed in this country, and uh, um, high usage of sugar. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's do sugar. Uh, there's absolutely no reason we should ever be subsidizing sugar into existence, which is what we do. Uh, I'm, I mean, part of what we all now know is, is that nutrition science is not really science at this point. It will be at some point. But our uh, government nutritionists basically said, don't eat fats, start move, eat carbs instead, and now we have an obesity. So government is, is an adequate technology to solve problems, I would suggest to you. It creates a lot of problems. With regard to growth hormones, those have been specifically bovine growth hormones, those have been evaluated time and time and time again. They pose no risks to human beings. Uh, there, is some, there is some effect on animal welfare. Apparently, uh, some cows, there's a greater incidence of, of mastitis in dairy cows. But again, we are so producing so much milk uh, around the world and in the United States that there's probably, you know, no particular reason to use it or not. I, I think that we have to evaluate the technologies for their safety. I, I, I do have a whole chapter, by the way, on genetically modified uh, uh, crops. And this, it is the case that every independent scientific organization that's ever evaluated the current GMO crops have found them to be safe for human beings and the environment. This is flat out the case. The consensus on that, quote-unquote, scientific consensus, is greater for the safety of biotech crops than it is for climate change. And yet the environmental community, or large portions of it, oppose this technology, and it's crazy to do that. And the reason they do it is not has anything to do with science. It has to do with a particular ideology, if you will, um, about nature being a certain kind of purity or, or, or inviability. Um, so... I, get, I hope I've answered your question in that regard. Every technology needs to be evaluated, and especially evaluated in exactly the way Andrew was saying, what happens if we don't go in that direction? What, what other harms will occur if we don't use the new technologies? Why are we being stuck with the old, more dangerous technologies as to the safer technologies? And as I say again with GMOs, no one has gotten on planet Earth a cough, sniffle, stomachache, wheeze from eating any uh, foods made with biotech crops, period. Uh, Ron's book, uh, Fred Smith's uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute, Ron's book, of course, is a wonderful continuation of Julian Simon's uh, work. But Julian himself, of course, was an incredible optimist, too. And Julian always would say, well, we can solve a problem, we can solve a problem. I said, Julian, but 
nations can throw up politics, democratic societies can throw enough grit into the thing to grind the machinery down. And Julie said, no, they couldn't. I said, but Egypt, uh, the turnaround in England to stagnation, um, China turning its back on technology. The, okay, thousands of years. And Julian says, yes, well, if you're gonna take a short time horizon, you got depressed. <laughs> but I think in a way, the, the you said democratic market economies. Democracy is always terrified of creative destruction. That is, they tend to focus on the, the new, or the risks that are introduced by a dynamic society. We, of course, recognize that there are risks of stagnation, there are risks of innovation, but they, for some reason, see the risk of, well, the risk of stagnation or that we still vindicate the current interest groups that are benefited from that current situation. So democracies seem to throw more and more sand in the grips. And, Europe is now not only subsidizing agriculture, it's suppressing GMOs. The United States, the same. And we have no mechanisms to bring some of those issues, like ACBRS, into the system of problem solving because it's outside the capitalist system because it has no ownership rights in that. So lack of ownerships in democracy seem to be the biggest threats we face to a sustainable world. Um, I, I, I see what your point is, but I, I should point out that the societies you mentioned, like Egypt or China and so forth, were natural states. They were far from democratic <laughs> societies. And basically what happens is that elites want to stop development and innovation because they will, they will lose. And so the problem of democratic politics, the way it's evolving in the United States, I would argue, and in Europe, is that elites have captured it to a certain extent. So they're recreating the old-fashioned natural states. If you... Uh, of, of, of patron-client networks, and I am optimistic that that process will not, it will slow down, but it will not stop progress, uh, that the, the, the forces of, of, of uh, free market capitalism are strong enough to route around the damage that government can create, is what I ultimately believe will occur. Um, and so I, I, I see the problem, but again, you have to remember it's elites that are trying to stop progress. It's not really the poor people. The poor people just want, or, you know, people who are or disenfranchised want to do better for their families, and they will probably take more opportunities if you offer them the opportunities. But it's the elites who try to frighten them into saying, if you do that, you will lose your job, you'll, it'll be exported away, or these immigrants will come in, or whatever the thing is. But it's a, it's a way of playing elite politics pretending to be democracy, I would argue. Just wait for the mic. Oh, one second. Sorry. So yeah, this is a question on GMO labeling again. Um, so there's a safe and accurate food labeling, I believe is going to be voted on today or sometime yeah, in Congress sometime. next day. Yeah, this week. Um, so a couple things on that, just from a kind of a free market perspective. Um, so custom, uh, consumers have been polled and they want GMO labeling and um, states like Vermont have passed their own state laws supporting GMO labeling. Yeah. I guess my question would be if there's a better approach to this. Um, if GMO crops are better, then wouldn't the better approach be to label it and have a big proud to be GMO <coughs> label on the package? Instead of trying to hide it and label it, it seems like a bad marketing point of view and it may be slowing down the movement. Uh, one of the problems, I understand what you're saying, one of the problems is, is that in the United States, uh, the way that we label foods is either nutritionally or as a warning label. There's a problem there. 
uh, as it turns out, those <coughs> are nutritionally basically the same as conventional crops or organic crops for that matter. And they are, uh, and so what would happen, and the FDA has said this, and every other scientific group that's ever looked at labeling, and there are several, the American Association for the American for the Advancement of American Association for the Advancement of Science, for example, looked at this, is that they are afraid. And in fact, I've been to uh, one way I make my living is to hang out with people who dislike me. So I've been to many uh, conferences by people who want labeling and so forth, and they know exactly what will happen. They have malice of forethought. They want to put labels on it because they want the public to treat it as a warning label. They want it to be misconstrued as a warning label. So, uh, our, you know, the FDA and so forth said we don't need that kind of labeling. Uh, what I pr would prefer is a voluntary system, and I think that's actually what the legislation we're talking about is, is doing, is that essentially anybody who wants to make claims with regard to the content of whether this food has genetically modified ingredients in it may do so. They may not disparage someone else's version of the food. They can't make health claims like, my food is healthier because it doesn't have GMOs. But you can say, my food doesn't have any GMOs in it. And I think that is a, a much better system. It's the same way that we do kosher food, for example, or halal or so forth. So the people who want, who demand, who want the labels should pay for the costs of that process of monitoring, labeling, and whatever, instead of the rest of us who don't care, uh, would be my argument. So I think the voluntary system that's being hashed out on Capitol Hill is probably a better way to go, ultimately. The good news is that there will be some new crops coming out that will be, have nutritional differences, and people will proudly label them at, for, and highlight those differences as they come along. I personally am looking forward to eating a non-browning apple that's coming out of Canada soon. But anyway. All right. Uh, lady over there. Uh, thank you. Picarus Aliashvili, no affiliation. So do you, do you foresee a rhetoric shifting away from a rhetoric of two? Maybe it's a... Can you... Oh, okay. Uh, so do you foresee a rhetoric shifting away from doom? Maybe that's humanity's way of prompting innovation. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is a new book out, The End of Plenty, uh, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. Um, uh, it's not nearly as bad as the population bomb. Trust me, it's a much better, more nuanced take on it. And I will be reviewing this. It'll be up tomorrow on reason.com. I recommend coming over and looking at it. But... The, the Malthusian um, meme is with us always, and as food prices uh, went up over the last five years or so to almost the same level they achieved during the last, quote, food crisis in the 1970s, you got these kinds of things coming out. You got peak oil coming out. And so th this, there's in the back of, of, of the minds. And also, doom is an incredibly effective political tool. Uh, basically, if you can claim something is going to go completely wrong and therefore you should do my plan, um, then that's what, it, it's a great sales tool. And so as a sales tool, it's not going to go away. Uh, as I say, I don't think I'm going to become a rich man because I don't sell doom. But anyway. Okay, one more. Um, the gentleman in the middle. Hi, I'm Kevin Finner, and I work at the National Academy of Sciences. And um, our membership includes Paul Ehrlichs and Norman Borlaugs. Um, 
and our general attitude. It's a big tent. <laughs> yeah, it's a big tent. Um, and our attitude generally, I think, is that that knowledge is going to make life better. Um, but at the same time, I think we're equally, our real attitude is skepticism, and that we're as dismissive of people who are um, Cassandras as we are of the Pollyannas. And one of the reasons that we have progress in, say, GMOs, is we recognize that water is somewhat limited, that pesticides can be dangerous, so let's engineer crops that use less water or are less dependent on pesticides. <laughs> So I wonder, as you, you look out, um, I see a danger in the sort of denying any problems. You know, everything is going to be fine. Um, I wonder, as you look at, at the issues that require attention, what are things that are worrisome to you where we do need to do something about it? Now, maybe it's not climate change, but with the ozone hole, we recognized the problem. We did something about it. That was great. Industry, scientists cooperated. We got a good result. Are there areas where you see potential where um, for where we need to do something and perhaps where we're not doing enough. Do you mean sort of a top-down government approach? It, it, didn't, it doesn't have to be. I mean, okay. in, in, in cleaning up the water supply, it helped to have governments um, supply clean water systems. It's not always the solution. In some cases it is. But as I say, um, if you don't have religion about this, you look at things and you find different solutions. Some problems are real, some are not. Some types of solutions are appropriate, some are not. I wonder as you look out, um, what are problems you would like to see action, and whether it's private sector, individual, or government action. Um, let, me, let me do a, a broad statement first, and this is uh, controversial, but I, I think I can sustain it. What, whatever any of you out there see an environmental problem, whatever you think it is, I don't even care what you think, if you see an environmental problem, it is occurring, I will maintain, in an open access commons. Uh, it is something that is unowned and unprotected by somebody. If a stream is polluted, it's because nobody owns the stream. If uh, the forests are being chopped down at, a, at unsustainable rates and not being replaced, it's because a government owns it, if you will. Uh, it's not being protected. If the air has stuff in it you don't like, it's because no one's protecting the air either. And so you can do two things with the commons. You can regulate it, which is what we've chosen to do, alas, in many cases. And it does work. I mean, it's clunky, it's hard, but it works. We have been able to clear up, as I gave the data, uh, a lot of the air pollution in the United States because of that, also because of technological improvements that, that come along with energy conservation that are a natural part of that process. But, or you could privatize it. And one of the things that we really do need to do, for example, is to, to protect aquifers, is to privatize aquifers, is to unitize them and give people property rights to the water in those aquifers. And if you do that, then people will start conserving it. Right now, it's a race to the bottom. I've got, I have a bigger straw, and I'm going to take as much water as I can because I know my neighbor's doing exactly the same thing. And so what you need to do, perhaps, is, is for government to set up systems for people to get together to privatize aquifers. And we've done that, for example, with fisheries with great success. Uh, and fisheries, are, a lot of fisheries in the United States are coming back largely because they were essentially privatized. Other places did it even better, New Zealand and Iceland, for example. So my preference is to, when we need to enclose the commons, and sometimes we do need to because we start to abuse it, is to figure out ways to privatize it. With regard to ozone, though, in my first book, Despite what Wikipedia says about me, I don't know the accuracy of these things, but 
In my first book, Ego Scam, I actually came out in favor of the Ozone Treaty, saying that, that we had to do that, um, that there was no, I couldn't figure out a simpler way of uh, particularly enclosing that, that, that particular commons. So the treaty worked uh, the, in order to talk uh, poor countries into uh, reducing their production and use of these refrigerants. We had to give them side payments of several tens of billions of dollars to close their factories. But as I report in the new book, um, the, the latest data show that the ozone hole over Antarctica is closing. So it, it's a mixture of things. I would prefer the first step to think about how we can privatize what the problems are, and there are problems. Uh, and as I say, all of those problems with regard to the environment are occurring in open access commons. And, and when we decide how to, to enclose them, the, the, I suggest you privatizing and putting them into the market is the most efficient way to do it. There are others where it's going to be very hard to do, and global climate may be one of those, but fortunately it's the last question, so I don't have to answer that one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you for coming. Um, and thanks to our speakers.